0: Well again, a very good morning to each of you on this beautiful summer day. We're so glad you're here and we welcome you and uh, especially welcome our guests who are with us today. We're so pleased to have you here and hope you'll stay for Coffee Fellowship after this service uh, in the Fireside Room. So as I said earlier, we're uh, in our sermon series, On the Case, uh, Discovering the Truth of the Parables of Jesus. And two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Clayton led us off at the parable of the sower and the seed then last week, we did the parable of talents, which is about uh, various investments and kind of a hard story for some of us. And today, we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we talked about this last week that a parable is a story. The word basically means story that projects much more than it is. Like it, it appears to be this, but it's much deeper and more complex. Amen? And Jesus told parables, especially to his disciples directly to help them learn more about what it means to be people of the kingdom of God. So today's parable is an interesting parable, but it's probably one of the most familiar parables that people know. I mean, even folks who are not in the church have probably heard of the Good Samaritan, right? So we, we raised our hands earlier. Most of us have heard the Good Samaritan story. And and in many ways, as I spent time preparing for this week, in some ways we've sanitized the Good Samaritan story, right? You know what I'm saying? Like we have Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove, or the Good Samaritan Fund in a lot of churches which help people in need, or uh, you know, there's the Good Samaritan Law where you are not held liable in helping someone who's in trouble or peril, or even that Good Sam Club, remember, that people traveled around in in RVs? I never really understood it. But we all have these kind of positive, kind of upbeat experiences of Good Samaritan, right? But the reality is Good and Samaritan in the time of Jesus did not go together, right? They were actually oxymoron. They were actually in opposition to each other, Because Samaritans were despised by the people that Jesus lived among and called and served among, right? So let's do a little lesson around Samaritans, so you have a sense of who they are. But before we do that, I just want you to think about your experience of Good Samaritans yourself, right? I mean, how many of you had a Good Samaritan in your life? You can raise your hands, right? People that have done something for you when you were in peril, maybe rescued you you when you were in trouble, helped you change a tire on the side of the road, right? Uh, maybe that was it, or, or you know, uh, it, there are a number of Good Samaritan pieces. And what's interesting is, um, I thought a lot about that, One of the ones I remember the most clearly, and I've had several, some are more elaborate and some are pretty simple, but this one was really amazing. So, several years ago, a friend and I decided to travel to that far-off land called Canada. Amen, right? And uh, we ended up in Toronto after traveling, driving there, and we parked our car at our hotel. And after being in that city for just a few minutes, it became clear that we probably didn't want to drive around Toronto. And Toronto has a great mass transit system. And so we decided, well, we're just going to ride the trains and the streetcars and the buses and everything everywhere we want to go, right? You know, I lived in Chicago. I can handle that, right? So anyway, we got out of our hotel. We walked to the nearest station. And uh, we were kind of anticipative of, of, of a station where there would be, you know, dispensers of tickets in the station. You know what I'm saying? Like the elf, you'd go and then you put in your card and, and maybe you have a venture card or whatever. But, but at that point in time, we just didn't know what that story was. So we went kind of to where we thought was the station and there was no vending machine whatsoever. And so we both kind of were standing there and someone said, oh, you're looking to buy a ticket. You just buy it on the train, the machines on the train." And that really kind of threw us off, frankly. I'm easily thrown off, and I was, right? So we got on the train, and the train, you know, it's still holding. And there's the machine. And, you know, here we are, you know, kind of lost and bumbling Americans. Maybe you've been that before, too. Uh, We thought somehow that our American money would work in the machine, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're wondering now, maybe we don't want you as our pastor. You don't seem too smart, right? I get it, right? Like, I just somehow thought it would work. And then when it didn't work, I thought, well, I'll use my debit card or my credit card. And it became clear that uh, the only thing that was going to get us onto the train and buy us the ticket was a loony. That's what they call these coins, right? That's their coinage. And we were just totally in the trains about to take off and we're kind of lost and we're just, and it's one of those moments of, p- of panic, right? I mean, there are bigger issues in the world. Amen, like James, get over it. But in that moment, We're embarrassed. We don't know whether to get off the train. We can't figure it out. And then this woman steps forward. She literally gets out of her chair, and she says the obvious, you boys aren't from here, are you? (laughs) And she said it very kindly, very Canadian, right? And I said, no, we're not. And we don't understand this system, and we don't know what to do. And she said, well, the machines are on the trains. mostly they only take coins. And all of what you have is not going to work. And and that seemed obvious to me, but it was good to have it repeated, amen. And so I thought, okay, okay. So we're kind of stepping back to get off the train. And she says, let me take you to the bank and help you figure this out. I thought I was on another planet, right? I said, what? She said, I'm going to take you to the bank and help you figure this out. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, whether Texas or Chicago, that would not have happened, amen, right? But in Canada... This woman took us off the train. She forfeited her trip. Do you understand that? Walked us across the tracks onto the sidewalk into a bank. And in the bank, after we came in, we thought she was just going to leave us there to get our money transferred. But she actually went ahead of this long line of people in queue. And she went to the head teller and she said something. And then she waved us forward in front of the rest of the people so that we could get it taken care of and get on the train immediately. Now, I don't know about you. If that happened here, we would not have lived. Amen, right? You know what I'm saying? And then she waited till we had our money and understood it. She helped us figure out what the different coins were. And then she walked us back to the next train, helped us pay for the trip. I mean, helped us get on and pay the trip's costs. And then she greeted us and said, welcome to Canada. Now, I'm telling you, friends, I just was totally thrown off, right? That's never been my experience here. That someone would take the time to forfeit their life, their trip. Two strangers walk them into a bank. People would be okay for we to go ahead of the line so that we could have our trip. For once, I got a sense of what a Samaritan was. It was powerful to me, and it happened again. Later the next day, we somehow didn't have enough money. You'd think we would finally get our heads together and figure this out. And a couple just stood up and said, we'll pay the rest of your fare. What is that? And maybe you have your own stories of people who've stepped in to offer a kind word or help you open a trunk or take your groceries to the car or mow your lawn or stand with you in a difficult time of challenge or have done something even more profound. But that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Good Samaritans. So thinking about Samaritans, let's learn a little bit about them. Remember Samaritans, just so we know what we're about to read were people who were descendants of the northern kingdom. I know you already know that, but let me just recap it for you. Uh, Remember at one point in time under King Saul, David, and Solomon, there was one kingdom called the United Monarchy or United Kingdom. The capital was relocated by David to Jerusalem there. You know, the tabernacle was set up later. Solomon would build the temple in Jerusalem, and it would be the seat of government and religious life for everybody, all 12 tribes. Amen? You with me? Are you awake? Hello? 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 Right? Okay. Anyway, uh, as you know, after Solomon died and uh, things were bad, uh, the kingdom split in half. Ten, king, ten tribes went forth, north, I mean, Uh, went forth to the north, and they created what was called the Kingdom of Israel. They relocated the religious site to Mount Gerizim. They relocated their capital north and created a separate country. And then two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, created what was called the Kingdom of Judah. They kept Jerusalem as the capital and the temple as a site of worship. But it was a huge family feud, right? These people did not get along. And there was anger about relocation of capital, different religious sites, And over the years, there just became more and more angst between the northern and southern kingdoms. Sometimes they worked together, sometimes they wouldn't. You'll know that the northern kingdom eventually was invaded by a large empire called the Assyrians, right? And the Assyrians were tough people, they were awful. And they came in and destroyed the northern kingdom. But unlike the Babylonians who would come later and destroy Judah, they didn't take people away. They just brought other people in from other countries they had destroyed and encouraged intermingling and intermarriage to to basically confuse the culture, right? And that's what they did. So they brought people from all sorts of places, settled them in the Northern Kingdom, people intermarried, which then created all kinds of issues for the Southern Kingdom people, and they eventually became known as the area of Samaria, and the people were called Samaritans, right? You got it now? The Southern Kingdom, the remaining two, felt like they were pure and that they had not fallen this route. But eventually, because of some bad political decisions, the Babylonians invade them, right? Do you remember that? Now, the Babylonians had a different practice about destroying a country. Uh, They decided it's best to take the elite, the educated, the political leaders, the bright and the best, and move them to Babylon and leave the folks on the margins to fend for themselves. And then they were great at destroying things. So they destroyed the temple, most of Jerusalem, and left things in ruin. They sound like beautiful people. Amen, right? So that's what created this division. Eventually Cyrus, king of Persia, conquers the Babylonians. He releases the exiles. They come back to Jerusalem, which is in ruins. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, which you could by the pool today if you wish... Uh, you could learn that Ezra and Nehemiah began to rebuild Jerusalem, but you know who opposed the building of Jerusalem? The Samaritans, right? So you can see this angst. And during Jesus' time, the temple has been rebuilt, but the angst and division and despising of Samaritans and uh, uh, those from Judea was intense. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They hated each other. They were at odds with each other. And you'll remember several weeks ago when we were preaching about Jesus And the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, remember, most Jews in traveling to Galilee would not go through Samaria, right? They would go around it. And I got myself in trouble with Sufa Jew because I compared it to going to Libertyville and avoiding Vernon Hills. You know what I'm saying? So, anyway, I've heard about it quite a bit. Here we go. So, you get a sense of what we're dealing with? These are the Samaritans that we're talking about. So, if you have your Bible... I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a red Bible in front of you. If you have your smart device, you can pull that up, or you can play Candy Crush, and I wouldn't know it. But here we go. Let's look at this story. Now, I want to go back a little bit. Jesus has just recalled the 70 followers or disciples he sent out to do healing and care and casting out of demons. And they've come back and told their stories And in verse 23, I just want you to hear this because this is going to play in later. Then, turning to the disciples, that's his followers, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Remember that because that's going to come into play. So they're gathered there, disciples, crowd of people. And in verse 25, which starts our story today, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. In some translations, it's a scribe, and they're the same people. So there were several groups of leaders in in the age of Jesus, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then scribes, which were lawyers who knew the law so well they could interpret it and speak to it and guide people around it. And that's who we're talking about. This is a lawyer or a scribe, Uh, writer who knows the Torah and the law well. Are you with me? And so he stands up to test Jesus. Now the Greek word here for test is he's not just to see if Jesus knows his Bible. Amen. This Greek word is he's trying to trap him. He has heard Jesus make these proclamations of being the son of God and the Messiah sending these disciples out. So he really wants to trap him. It's a very intentional kind of mean spirited testing. You hear what I'm saying? So he stands up to test him, and he says, teacher or rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law, what do you read there? That's fascinating, right? So he asks a question, and Jesus doesn't give an answer. He gives a question, in fact, two. What is written in the law, what do you read there? Because he's a scribe. So Jesus comes back, well, you should know this. Why are you asking me, right? Right? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now we've heard this before. Amen, right? So for those of you who are great Hebrew scholars, you'll be reminded this is the Shema, right? That's the Hebrew word for listen. And this comes from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, chapter 6. And if you have Jewish friends... This is what's written in the Masusa on their doors, on their prayer boxes. Uh, They say it twice a day. It is a critical core belief of Judaism to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? And in fact, you remember during the Reckless Love Sermon series last month, we talked about this from the perspective of Matthew. But it's interesting, the question in Matthew was not what must I do to have eternal life, But what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember that? But here in Luke, what must I have to inherit eternal life? It's a different question. Jesus answers with two questions. Then the scribe answers with the Shema. But he adds something, and this happens in all three places, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you go to Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your soul, strength, and your very self, but not your mind. But the mind gets added in these translations. Jesus Uh, uh, is certainly hearing a fourth component. So then Jesus responds, Well, scribe, you've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. Now, that seems to be the end of the story, right? But it's not. Because remember, this scribe, this lawyer, really wants to trap Jesus. So wanting to justify himself, prove himself, be public, you know, get tweeted, I don't know what, he asks Jesus this question, Well, Jesus, then who is my neighbor, right? And that's where things get interesting. So instead of answering with an answer, Jesus answers with a parable. So knowing all we know about Samaritans and knowing everything we know about what's been asked, hear this parable afresh. And this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I want You can close your eyes if you want for a second or you can just sit there, whatever you'd like. Um, I want you to think of somebody who gets on your last nerve, right? Or I want want you to think of somebody who really is hard to be around. Or I want you to think of somebody that creates angst for you, maybe even fear for you, somebody that maybe you don't really even like. And I see in your eyes you have somebody in mind. So I want you to think about that person when I say Samaritan, because I think that's going to help you get a better sense of this story. You can open your eyes now. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving them half dead. Now, I don't know if you've... How many of you have been on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, I haven't, but you can Google it and you can watch how bad it is. But uh, Jerusalem's up on a mountain. You probably know that. And Jericho is near the, the banks of the Jordan River. So it's quite a decline going from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? In fact, according to Wikipedia and to several other sources, um, it is a 17-mile journey, but in those 17 miles, it drops 3,000 feet. That's pretty. That's pretty treacherous, right? It's kind of like the old, short, apta road that they took away, right? You know what I'm saying? Just unclear, dangerous, uncertain. You know what I'm saying? It's just one of those difficult places. And if you Google it and look at the pictures, there are lots of cliffs and bluffs and clefts and rocks. And so not only was it a steep and narrow and difficult road, it was not an interstate. In addition, because of all of those geographical features, it was the perfect spot for robbers and thieves, right? Because you could hide, you could get behind stuff. And so the road was known as a dangerous and difficult road from Jerusalem to Jericho. So when people heard Jesus tell the story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, people went, oh, this isn't going to go well, right? You see what I'm saying? They already knew that this might be difficult. And then as soon as Jesus says, well, robbers beat him and left him half dead, everybody's like, yeah, he shouldn't have been on that road, right? That's where we are. Now, by chance, Jesus says... A priest was going down that road. And suddenly the hearers of the story go, Oh, the priest, the guy who's in charge of the temple, the person who offers the sacrifice, the priest is going to stop, right? I mean, we all think the priest is going to stop. So this priest comes along, he's going down the road, and when he saw him in the ditch, he passed by on the other side. Wow, that's hard. I thought the priest was going to stop. I mean, you know, he's been a seminary, you know, he's been vetted by the bishop. He's been the pastor of our church for ten years, and he doesn't stop? What a jerk, right? And yet, before we start getting judgy on the old priest, let's remember that in the, in, according to the law, the Torah, if somebody touched a dead body, they were ritually unclean. So the priest, if he had reached out and touched the man... He would not have been able to function in the temple for some time, right? And yet at the same time we know the law says that when a priest sees a dead body they need to bury it immediately because you know in Judaism you need to be buried within 24 hours, right? So it's really this dilemma of how the priest is going to do it. He looks in the ditch and then he goes on. It's really a hard work. Then Jesus continues, so likewise a Levite, that's the priestly assistants, the folks who help the priest, it's a special tribe. When he came to the place, and people are going to go, well, the Levite's going to stop, right? I mean, you know, he's going to be great, and he's going to stop and help this guy out. And so when he came to the place and saw the man in the ditch, he too passed on the other side. And so the people are kind of stressed, you know. We don't know if the man in the ditch is Jewish or not. We don't know if he's Gentile or—we don't, we don't know anything about him. All we know is that he's been beaten, his clothes have been taken, and he's been left for dead. And maybe the Levite was too busy, maybe he had a schedule, maybe he had tickets to a Cubs game, I don't know what it was, I probably would have passed those up this year, but anyway, you know what I'm saying, he, was, he passed it up as well. So then Jesus, and they, they anticipate there's a third person, and Jesus says, well, there was a third person, and most of the people listening probably thought it was an Israelite, Or maybe it was a Pharisee or Sadducee, some religious leader who's going to stop and help this man. I mean, we're all like, it's going to be somebody we know. And Jesus says this, but a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. Now, I can imagine those early hearers said, well, this isn't going to go well. Samaritan's probably going to kick him and destroy him. You know what I'm saying? That's where they were. A Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. Or according to one translation, he was moved with compassion. Now, you and I don't get that, how radical this sentence is, that the Samaritan had compassion the man in the ditch but I want you to think of the person who gets on your last nerve the person who really is hard for you to be around and think about them stopping and helping you and you might get a glimpse of how this story rubbed raw against those first hearers you know what I'm saying now he doesn't only stop and have compassion but he actually does something about it well he pours wine on the wound which is like an antiseptic you probably already knew that He pours oil on the wound, which keeps it soft and protected. He then takes the man and puts him on his animal. We assume it's a donkey or something. He secures him. He takes him into town. I mean, this guy is surrendering his day. He is sacrificing his agenda. He is missing his meeting at 12 noon in the boardroom. He is giving up everything he's supposed to do to take care of somebody. He has no idea who he is or what he's about. He gets into town and not only does he get him into town where he could be taken care of by other people, he takes him down to the day's end, checks him into a room, gets him all settled, orders room service. You see what I'm saying? It's a lavish thing. And then because he's got a business trip and he's got to get back on the road, he goes to the innkeeper and he says, here are two days worth of wages. It's a lot of money. Use this to care for him over the next two days as he heals. And if he stays longer, needs more, or orders from Papa John's, I'll pay for it. Amen? Now, I'm telling you, these early listeners are taken aback. A Samaritan is doing this kind of care and compassion for somebody who's fallen into the hands of robbers? And then Jesus says something really interesting to the lawyer. He says to him, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I love the guy's response. Do you hear it? He says, the one who showed him mercy. But let me tell you what he's really said. He won't name him. Like he didn't say the Samaritan, right? He can't even say the word. And here's my interpretation. When Jesus says, who was the neighbor in this story? The man goes, the one who showed him mercy. Do You see the kind of angst because it can't be true that a Samaritan would offer this kind of compassion to someone in need. And then Jesus says to the scribe, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. If you want abundant and eternal life, you can't just love God. You can't just love yourself but you must love your neighbor, and friends, sometimes your neighbor is not who you think it is. Amen. In fact, sometimes the neighbor we are called to love, sometimes the neighbor who loves us is not the person we anticipate, want to be around or whatever. That's how God works in the world. Everything gets turned upside down. How about you, that's hard for me, right? Anybody struggling? I know you're all sweet people. But anyway, it's hard for me. As I imagine some of these difficult people and that they might be my neighbor, it's really hard. It's hard to talk about compassion and see people that I don't expect to be kind, right? When I first moved to Chicago in 1994. You, are, you know this about me. I grew up on a farm. I grew up in a, near a town of 1,200. I did go to school at a large state university, but I still was c- rurally connected. I went to seminary in Dallas and felt like it was overwhelming. I did my internship in rural Oklahoma. So when I ended up deciding to move my ministry experience from Amarillo, Texas and Lubbock, Texas to Chicago, Illinois, it was a big shocker, right? Huge shocker, like major shocker. And when I got here and found my apartment in Logan Square, it was just kind of hard to meet people, and it was a different world, and it didn't function the way I knew, but I did the best I could. But one of the things that I wanted to do is, though I was connected in Texas, I wanted to be connected to the United Methodist Church in northern Illinois, because that's where I was going to be living and serving, right? And so after I'd been here about a month, I made an appointment with the district superintendent. And that's a regional pastor that kind of helps supervise pastors. And I ended up meeting her for coffee. And uh, I, I just said, oh, I'm here and I'm excited to be here. And I just am trying to make connections and I'd love to be a part of this conference. And all she did was provide me with a list, I think, of 20 things that I should do to prove myself before she would even consider the possibility. I remember going home thinking, wow, this is a different world, amen. And then I remember finally getting lunch with the bishop in February, and he meant well. He took me to lunch, and he too had a host of loops and hoops for me to jump through and said, it's going to be two years, James, because we need for you to prove yourself. So I better see some fruit from your ministry. And then the thing I remember most is at the end of the lunch, he said, and by the way, because I don't know you very well, you'll have to pay for your own lunch, yeah, it was hard. So I remember getting in my car thinking, maybe I've made a terrible mistake, right? And uh, I was pretty de- crestfallen, you know. I just was like, gosh, it feels like nobody's interested or caring or compassionate. And, you know, I mean, I'm from Texas, and that's difficult in itself, amen, right? And uh, so needless to say, I, I'm kind of giving up, and somebody suggested a minister in Chicago named Carol Brown. She served at Berry Memorial Church in Lincoln Square. And they said, Carol's so connected, and Carol will love um, helping you, and Carol's a Canadian. I went, oh, my gosh. You know, I didn't know that that would live out in other ways, right? So anyway, I, I made an appointment, and when I called, she said, yeah, I heard you might be calling. It sounds like you have an accent. And I said, well, I'm from Texas. And she said, Oh. And I, you know, because Texans can be difficult. I mean, let's be honest, right? So anyway, I went to that meeting. And I went down into the basement of Barry Church. And after all my experiences, I thought, this is just going to be another, you know what I'm saying? But when I arrived, Carol welcomed me warmly. She made tea for me. She sat down and she gave me two and a half hours and offered me every opportunity and suggestion for connecting deeply. And we're still very close friends today. I didn't expect it in the basement of this small church in Lincoln Square. It didn't make sense to me that a woman uh, who kind of had an issue with Texas accents would not be welcoming to me. But she was. She had compassion. And she was a good Samaritan to me. And it really changed my whole life. Friends, this parable's hard, right? It is hard. It's challenging. In a world that is so divided and broken, in a world where there's such mean-spiritedness, in a world where we can separate and divide and build walls, Jesus calls us to reach out and look and see into the ditch. Remember what I read at the beginning? You see what others cannot see. You hear what others cannot hear. Jesus is calling you to see and hear and listen and have compassion as the people of Christ. But it's hard for me, and maybe it's hard for you. And I pray that you have seen the parable in a little different way, that it challenges you in a much more uh, hard and and difficult way, that it, it, it makes us look at our life and our faith and our journey in a way that we've never looked at it before. Because I think sometimes with a good Samaritan, we just think it's a sweet story. It's not sweet. It's hard. Will you be a neighbor? Will you be a neighbor to those you like? But will we be a neighbor to those who are hard and in need and on the road? Will we see them? And will we hear them? And will we love them? If we don't, the church has failed, failed miserably to be a neighbor in the world. Amen.